welcome back everybody to Us Without Them. Today we are chatting about the ninth track of Catch Across the Foxes, My Exit Unfair. What a what an unfair exit it is. <laughs> oh, what man. a great opening to a track. Yeah. Um, yes. Just I yeah, every time I feel like I can still recall the first time that I heard this, like just on my first listen through of Catch Rose of the Foxes and just hmm. just kind of being in this like mode, right, where you, you have that kind of like opening guitar that's like very sort of ambient and like quiet, and then all of a sudden and it's like, Oh, what is happening here? What is this? Yeah. Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> Where are we going with this one, guys? Oh, yeah. Boy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That riff is, oh, man. Incredible. All time great. Yeah. Uh, for, yeah, for the catalog. It's just, it's so memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that I want to break down and talk about in the opening of this song. Um, and before we even like get to the notes, we need to talk about the silence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So structurally, this album is so um, sort of incessant. So much of the time where the tracks bleed into each other and there's this sort of sustained intensity, even when there's like a little bit of a lull in volume, there's a sense that like you're just waiting for something to happen. Yeah. And this right. is a rare moment where you actually kind of get to take a breath mm-hmm. before something else happens. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not total pure silence. There is a tiny bit of a ring of feedback or something. If you really crank it up, you can hear, and I think it's like on the note B, which is um, the key that the last song ended in. So <clears throat> I don't know if that's actually like part of the recording session um, from whenever they actually wrapped up paper hanger or if they actually like tracked that intentionally as a kind of a, a really light opening sound. Yeah. Interesting. But the significant thing for me is not just that it's a breathing point in the album, but specifically that it is seven seconds of silence. Mm. I don't know if you've ever watched this tick by, but uh, as I, I tried to make a case last time, convincingly or not <laughs> the ending <laughs> of paper hanger with this knockout of a of a finale line, if they ask you for the sign of the father and you tell them it's movement, 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 mm-hmm. and repose. Yeah. I argued that the movement, 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 followed by a long stretch of and that fills about as much time as the three movements, and then the word repose constitutes a poetic Sabbath cycle. That we have right. the the creating mm-hmm. of creation space for three beats the filling of that space with all of its fullness for three beats and then rest at the end. What I did not mention last time, which launches us into the beginning of this track is that the actual like hard hitting finale of paper hanger where Ricky just goes nuts on the drums. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Is, is a re-emphasizing of that Sabbath cycle because what you get is so at, at the end of Paper Hanger, after we hear movement, movement, move it, and repose, the actual thing that the band just hammers in all members at the same time is. 
one, two, three, four, five, six. Six hard hits followed by a rest. Yeah. Mm. And they just do that over and over again. One, two, three, four, five, six. And it's not totally empty space, right? But there's this lift that happens after six instances of activity followed by a seventh moment of rest. Then yeah. six of activity and a seventh moment of rest. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can count it as seven, eight, basically. Or seven yeah, beats I mean, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's part of it. Another part that this is just for funsies uh, is that <laughs> this is a big old B power chord. And then that linking thing the rest of the band plays is our old mm-hmm. pals A and B, which function in a similar sort of launches back into something role on A to B life on a variety of occasions. Mm. So um, like it's, it's pretty similar to the ending of nice and blue where nice and blue is sort of this mysterious thing. Like yeah. that doesn't sound the same, mm-hmm. but then you get right. That big, like slamming yeah, right, A and right. B that mm-hmm. launches you back into right, it. Right. Right. And this pitch is, is right in the middle of the B power chord that we get at the end of paper hanger. That F sharp is shared between the way those two songs function at the end. So we've got this hard hitting ending, echoing this Sabbath cycle idea, echoing stuff all the way back from A to B life. And then that wraps up with this big sort of snarl in Mike's guitar with the wah pedal on it. Yeah. And then you get seven seconds of silence. Again, this weighty, meaningful number seven. And they like somebody had to decide how many seconds they were going to wait until the intro started. So right. I mean, it could have just been they're winging it and it just landed that way. But I, I think that's interesting anyway. Oh, it's definitely numerologically interesting. Yeah. But whether it was intentional or not, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. So after seven seconds of silence. You get this chord that Mike plays. So you all can can be my um, uh, music theory students for a minute. <laughs> and so this chord that Mike plays. For our music theory quiz show, is that a major or a minor chord? Can you play it again? I would say I would say major sounds major. I'm going to say, because I've been burned by this before, that it's neither because it doesn't have. (laughs) Yeah, okay, that is probably the safe safe answer. Yeah, no, I I am I am intentionally being facetious. It is neither major nor minor. Right. Okay, cool. uh, It is something called chordal harmony, chordal meaning rather than tertiary, which would be harmony based on thirds. So like that's a minor E, E, E minor chord, E and then a third above that and then a third above that. Chordal harmony, which is not used until like the middle of the 20th century in any consistent fashion, really builds a chord on a fourth. So we now have E to A, which is a fourth. Then a major second above that is B, then an E above that. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know for sure that those are the specific four notes that are always ringing out in Mike's guitar. He might have like that D in there somewhere. Just me sitting here at the keys trying to like feel out how it sounds. It, I can't make a major or minor chord work, but I can make this sound like how the song begins. Interesting. Mm. And then 
Is that what I want? Nope. That's kind of the second one. Wow. So that second chord, again, has some sort of extra suspended stuff that doesn't resolve anywhere. In this case, you could call it a kind of B minor, but with an E stuck in the middle. Yeah. Which softens it and kind of feels like something else. So we have these very wide open sounding chords mm -hmm. that Mike plays at the beginning. So it's not only that there's plenty of space, although there is, it's not only that it's just a solo guitar, which up to this point in the album we haven't had, it's always been a group of people playing together, mm -hmm. um, which is gonna matter here and also later in the song. Um, but it's just the actual pitches themselves imply a kind of a wide open space, a sort of a breathing room after our seven seconds of breathing room we already had. Yeah. Um, so famously, this kind of harmony was used a lot by Aaron Copeland. So like Appalachian Spring, mm -hmm. which is this famous ballet piece, Great has piece. a lot yeah. of these stacked fourths in it. Um, he also has a really sweet piece called Quiet City uh, that features, it's like a, a large string section and then trumpet and oboe, I think, maybe trade back and forth. And it's got a bunch of stacked fourths. And so it's like, it's a sound that was evoked in mid 20th century American music that people associate with like the open prairies and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but Aaron Copeland used it to evoke urban scenes also. It's just, it's just sort of this suspended animation that doesn't have a strong tendency to need to go anywhere. Right. So that's how the song starts. But then. <laughs> nope, nope, that's not it. That thing that comes in, I think in the lower guitar, and then maybe the bass mm -hmm. joins it. Um, immediately calls back up the harmonic language uh, that we visited earlier in the album. So <clears throat> this this song here, and man, I'm sorry for talking so much. This this song okay. here, in terms of the musical flow of the album, is is track nine, and it goes directly into track ten. Forward yep. letter is going to hit right on the heels of this without any pause at all. Yep. Um, these two, if we're looking at the album as a mirror with six and seven being the pivot point where everything unfolds and reverses, mm -hmm. then the opposite two songs to this are tracks three and four, which are Time Me Up and Time Me and Leaf, which have mm. plenty of ties to each other. The Leaf imagery right. especially, but they're, they're very closely linked. So we have closely linked songs in the slots three and four, very closely linked songs in the slots nine and ten. And this song actually throughout is borrowing bits and pieces of the music from both Timey Up and Timey and Leaf. And it keeps coming back around again. Yeah. Wow. So this riff in the lower guitar and bass not only does it also form a chordal harmony if you just stack the pitches in that sequence. Um, so it's already borrowing the same tonal language, but really reworked from that opening kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It also is the exact same notes as the beginning of Leaf, this, that thing, mm. that little kind of magical sounding riff that opens <laughs> that song is E, G, A, B. And then the, the this guitar riff that kind of chugs in at the start of this one is G, B, A, so it's stacked in a different register, right? But it's all 
the same pitches as, as that. So like, that's not a conscious connection when you first listen to this, but you kind of, it feels like we're in familiar territory. Somehow. Yeah, definitely does. Definitely. But does. once we've laid that groundwork that we're in familiar pitch territory, then the like iconic riff that comes in is right. Uh, mm -hmm. no, let me get the rhythm right in my head. Um, Nope. Now I'm just thinking of timey <laughs> up and timey because yep. it's the same thing. So timey up and timey starts with right, mm -hmm. and then in, here in um, in my exit unfair, You're talking about over the like um, pre or at the it's like the post chorus. Is that well, what you're talking about? Here in in this song, I'm talking even just right when the lyrics start. right when the lyrics start. Oh, right when on the downbeat start. of the okay. lyrics. We get, let me, let me just. Play oh, this yes, thing. yes, yes, yes. Um, no, that's it. No, okay, here. My right. So, so right as Aaron starts the lyrics, we get that riff. That high up the guitars, one, yeah. that, that high up one, which is uh, G, F sharp, and a little soft E. Exact same pitches in the exact same register as the beginning of Timey Up and Timey. Yeah. Wow. So all that. I would have that, never noticed that. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Hmm. All that swirling stuff flowing out of the end of Paper Hanger, calling back to the songs at the opposite side of the album, yep. sets us up for the beginning of verse one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Hmm. Awesome. And I hope you all don't have much to say about the words of this song because there's a lot <laughs> of playing on musically. Oh boy. Three hours. Later. I mean, is there um, much to say about the words in this one? Seems guess, pretty straightforward. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, nothing to unpack here. Um, yeah. The only thing I wanted to say about the music, what is fascinating as everything you laid out, is we don't hear lyrics until a minute into the song. Right? There's a lot of context being given to us yeah. prior to any lyrics starting so that's and the song fun <laughs> the song is is just under four minutes in total runtime so this mm -hmm. is like a full 25 percent and a little more is yep. just devoted to the setup before we get any supposed content right i mean i, right. I believe there's plenty of content going on <laughs> until that point yeah right no but I, I think that adds to the weightiness of the lyrics they mm -hmm. aren't they aren't wasting any time there's there's zero not that there's ever any filler in an Aaron Weiss lyrical song, yeah. but there's absolutely none. This song tells you exact. Well, I don't know if it tells you exactly what it's trying to tell you, but it says only the words it means to. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I'll I'll kick it off if, if you don't mind. My exit unobserved and my homesickness absurd. I said water expecting the word would satisfy my thirst. Talking all about the second and third, when I haven't understood the first. <laughs> um, so I think that it's we were talking about this a little bit, um, sort of before you know, in our little pre-production meeting. But there is so much mention of water on this album, and I never Oof, yeah. noticed it before. I don't know how I didn't notice it, like. I know that this song, obviously, this track, 
the next track, like there's mention of water, mm-hmm. but I never thought of Catch Frost the Foxes as like a water not, album yeah, full of water imagery. Themed. <laughs> Most yeah. people point to Brother Sister as being like more like it that. It starts but, with the sound of rain for God's sake. Right. <laughs> and you have this kind of like maritime captain mm-hmm. ship imagery in, in Messes mm-hmm. of Men. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This <laughs> this album is full yeah. of water imagery. Uh, and it's just it's constantly. Wild. Yeah, no, yeah. I, until we started preparing for the season, I never noticed it either. And as soon as I was like, I just put on my ears to think about consistent themes. I was like, oh my goodness, there's talk about water in virtually every song. Yep. Yeah. And it all seems to be adding to a mosaic of like a continual developing image the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So actually, so- I think. I think the beginning of Brother Sister now, like in retrospect, and we'll see what I think about it when we get to season ooh, three. But ooh, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, I <laughs> think the opening track of that, more than setting up the themes of Brother Sister, is almost just like working as a dovetail off of the end of Catch for yes. the Foxes. Like it's using Catch for the Foxes yeah. as a launching point. Yes, that's so. Yeah, it's so great, and I never, I've never heard it that way before. But it makes yeah, so much sense now. Yeah. To to read it that way. So, yeah, I, what's interesting about this, the first mention of water in this verse is that this is a different use of water yes. than what we've seen before, because the water imagery before um, has been a lot of like ocean sinking in the ocean, right? Yep. Trying to be rescued, floating for days, sinking down below the waves. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, finding pearls under the surface and all this kind of thing. And obviously in um, Paper Hanger, you have, uh, you know, the wine turned to water, then turned back to wine. Yep. Um, but here we have, I said water expecting the word would satisfy my thirst. So a very, a, a new, uh, I think, uh use of of water here right as a metaphor for um satisfying a kind of spiritual thirst right right Right. do you all have any any sort of read on what he means by that line i mean i want to make sure we touch on the stuff that comes before that my exit unobserved my homesickness absurd but i don't i don't even mind if we like don't touch that till we get to those lines at the end of the song and yeah i think those are going to be illuminated by the song so i don't have much to say other than uh, we'll get there when we get there i guess is what i'll say yeah well yeah. so i i mean i know that we talked very early on it might have been the overview episode mm-hmm. that this track steven i think you mentioned because we were talking about Early on, we were talking about the record being a kind of perhaps a breakup album with the church. Yes. And we I know we've taught we've sort of brought that up, you know, here and there. We haven't used that as our sort of guiding light, the way that we used breaking up with Amanda as the guiding yeah. light in A to B life. Um, but I but I do think it's worth bringing back here. Because yeah. I do recall you mentioning, Stephen, this track in particular, mm-hmm. right? That it seems like really what's happening in this song is um, this is where he is leaving, mm-hmm. uh, actually, right? That the yeah. exit unfair is the exit from whatever church community that he was right. a part of. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there is something that is that that resonates. I think. Um, I think that many of us. I, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I know that this is the case for me. That um, when I've left church communities before, my exit has been unobserved. Like I know this feeling. I, mm. If this is what he's referring to, right? Um, I, I know this feeling very well. Uh, the church that I was at in Chicago for six and a half years, um, that I, you know, I played uh, a couple times a month, you know, in the band, and like I was pretty involved, um, you know. And they said they said goodbye, like when, like the last time that I that I played, like they made a note of it, like that. Oh, you know. Goal and family have taken this job. Uh, they're moving to Virginia. You know, thanks for all that you've done. But like, I yeah, I haven't really been in touch with many mm-hmm. people from from that. You know, it it did kind of feel like like okay, you know, cool. And then we're gone, and that's that's it. Like, there's yeah. no. Um, and I mean, that happened at my home church too, the church that I grew up at, um, mm. which that really felt wrong <laughs> in, yeah. in a way, you know, um, where it's like, yeah, you leave and like you, you're told that you're part of this community, right? You're told that you're an important part of this community. And yet when you go, no one cares. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nobody is. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure that that there are some people that when they leave, like maybe a pastor or somebody like does pay attention and does care. Um, but like if this is what if this is the feeling that Aaron is talking about, right, um, exiting from a church community and, you know, that you thought cared about you and no one seems to notice. No one mm-hmm. is checking in on you to see if you're doing all right. No one is. It's like you're you're gone. You don't exist anymore. To them, right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that that, I mean, I guess to be fair, I think that happens in a lot of places. Like, you know, if you leave a job or something mm-hmm. like oh, that, yeah. like, you know, I spent seven years in my department at Northwestern, uh, yeah. you know, and, and I do, I do keep in touch with some people, but like professors aren't like checking in on me or whatever, but you expect something different from a church, mm-hmm. right? I think that that's what makes it more painful. It's like, yes, this is typical human behavior, but you expect something different from a church community, a community that tells you, you are a community, you matter here, you belong here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, I mean, I've been thinking about this song quite a bit ever since we, you know, had that discussion about like, okay, this we could think of this as like a breakup album with the church. And this song marks a kind of inflection point where I think that more so than the other tracks on this record, I feel like the imagery, the, the, the meaning of the lyrics is in some ways a little bit more straightforward, even though it's still complex, even though there's still a lot to unpack here. Um, I think there is a kind of straightforward way that you can understand this song. And it is about wrestling with leaving a church community, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely see that. Um, I definitely so, see that. So like when he says, 
my exit un- um, unobserved and my homesickness absurd. I think one way to understand that is he has left. Uh, his his leaving was unremarkable, right, to the community. Mm-hmm. And and he perhaps, perhaps the homesickness is he actually misses that community, right? Because now that he's out of it and they don't care about him, right? There, no one's following yeah. up, following up with him. Now he misses that, right? That's, yeah. that's one way I think that you could read this. And especially because then, you know, you have this next line. I said, water expecting the word would satisfy my thirst. He is spiritual. I mean, this is spiritually maybe, thirsty. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that feels a little too cliche, but I, I don't think that it is necessarily no. like he's no, I, very, I yeah, I, I think that that's, that's what he's talking about here. He we had that in paper word. hanger. I, I can't recall the line, but there was a line. that was like, Oh, that feels a little cheesy to think of it that way. And then it was like, no, it actually works really well as the yeah, song sure. continued on. So right. I, actually, Steven, I had a question because you have yeah. the liner notes scanned. Mm-hmm. Is the word is W capitalized as it's written? It is, but so is everything else. Okay. <laughs> all, all of the text is capitalized, so ah, you okay. get no clues from that. Gotcha, gotcha, darn. Um, um, no, but so, yeah, so so there, uh, but I see where you're going with that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there is this tradition rooted in the first chapter of the Gospel of John of referring to the Lord also as the Word. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, so that would make sense. Um, I, I see two other layers going on with that statement. I said, water expecting the word would satisfy my thirst. Yep. I don't one. I don't think this is super meaningful, but the word water is in quotes in the liner. Yes. Right. But it is, but it is him like referring to a word. I think it's just grammatically the way you do it. It is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think it refers to spiritual thirst. I also think in reference to this album, we can tie in all of the water imagery, especially from the first half tracks one Mm -hmm. through six and talk about, well, what did all that water represent in the first half of the album? Yes. That's exactly where I, that was the layer I was going to unpack too. So Nick, you, you take that. I want to take a weird side line on this for a minute. Sure. That I think has something to do with the kind of church that Aaron was leaving and reflecting on in this Mm -hmm. year. I don't have um, documentation right in front of me, but from ver- various sources, a little bit in in Paul Matthew Harrison's uh, All the Clever Words on Pages, and also from at least one interview I've read with Aaron sometime in the last year, I get the the image and the impression that the church that Aaron joined in the late 1990s, that he was invited by Greg Jehanian, who later joins the band, who was also mm-hmm. part of the operation in the early days of Me Without You. Yes. So Greg invites mm-hmm. Aaron to join this church, He goes through some kind of conversion experience from his sort of unique hodgepodge religious upbringing at home. (laughs) Yeah. And the church that he joins at least is somewhere on the spectrum of like Pentecostal charismatic there. Mm -hmm. I've I've seen him make comments about that, about people like speaking in tongues at this church and that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 So that specific practice is not being invoked here. But just thinking about the kind of church that you could slip away from unnoticed in the late 90s that is mm-hmm. also on the sort of charismatic spectrum, mm. odds are it's probably a mega church that is somehow tied to the Word of Faith movement. I don't okay. know if that 
phrase means anything to either of you? No, um, but vaguely. I'm not super familiar with uh, Pentecostal charismatic movements, but they're yeah. sort of on my periphery a little bit. Sure, yeah. sure. So that's that's like my upbringing and home base. That's like the folks that I'm around most of the time. Mm. And so, so the word of faith in a tiny nutshell is a tendency within one branch of charismatic American Christianity um, that is mostly represented on television. So if you go to any like Christian TV, you're bound to run into this right. within yes. the next half hour of your life. Yeah. And it stems from uh, the ideas of this sort of idiosyncratic thinker of the early 20th century named E.W. Kenyon, who had these ideas mm -hmm. about the power of words. So from a totally different field, if you think of like J.L. Austin's speech act theory in linguistics, mm -hmm. where you can mm -hmm. say something and that something happens. So, I mean, like a king can say, be gone, right? And like the people in the room have to get out or you can yeah. shout fire in a crowded building and people will leave. Like the word itself has power to enact change in the physical reality. Correct, yeah. So word of faith thinking, um, assumes that, but at a cosmic level, that hmm. that the mere speaking of a word has actual tangible power in space-time, that it does things to the world we're in. So, not that all that is like a heavy cloud over this song. No, sure. But just the odds are, if that's the kind of church that he's in, that people are doing those sorts of things and saying words, expecting them to, to enact power in the world, then the line... I said water, expecting the word would satisfy my thirst, makes perfect sense in a very yep. literal way, not even as a metaphor, but just like. Yep. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right? The, okay, so that actually dovetails well into where I was going with the conjuring up the water imagery of the first yeah. half of the album. So yeah. right from the first, well, more so in January 1979, but even in Torches Together, we see this grappling with the narrator of the album. And again, this is even more tenuous, tenuously interconnected between songs, but we've been talking about it that way, so we might as well continue. That is to say, he's grappling with this sensation of, I, I guess I would, for lack of a better word, emptiness. You know, we, we get the glass imagery, right? Like yeah. Like something being poured into or out of the, mm -hmm. the glass in the previous song, but even the shining one inside me, let's say anything. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I see you, you know, thing, things of that nature. And so we, we get this continuation with wineskins all the way, you know, all the way to the final album. He has this vessel that is empty or not so empty. And we talked mm -hmm. about this, I want to say last season, Joel talking about the concept of emptiness in Buddhism. Yes, yes, um, yes. And so it conjures to me that is the water that he's at least partially metaphorically this water of faith that he's swimming in and to be drowned in it, to be caught in the waves of it, but not controlling yourself the way you were if you were like sailing, for, for instance, or strongly, mm -hmm. confidently swimming, for example. Yeah. And now we're stripping all that away. And he's saying the most empty version of that. Like, I'm not even imagining myself swimming in the ocean of faith or the ocean of emotion or, or God's love or whatever it may be. Yeah. Now I'm mm -hmm. literally just saying the thing, hoping mm -hmm. that will satisfy. Yeah. 
my spiritual, my thirst for whatever. Uh, and in that way, I said water expecting the word would satisfy my thirst also becomes a metaphor for saying any word, hoping that it will satisfy the thing you are longing for. Yeah. Right. So my homesickness absurd. Oh, man, I wish I could just go home. Yeah. Well, you're not home when yeah. you, just because you said that. Right. <laughs> for example. Right. right. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting. So I there's there's something interesting, I think, then going on, like mm -hmm. with the grammar of I said water expecting the word. Yeah. Would satisfy my thirst. Right. There's a sort of uh, there's a double meaning. Right. The way that exactly. Yeah. Of the word. Right. Where word can mean the word water. Uh, and just saying it or. Yeah. OK, so. I'm glad you're picking up what I'm putting down. Yes, no, <laughs> yeah, no, I am. Yeah, Cause, sorry. Cause we've I'm just got, like kind of thinking out got, loud here. We've got the word water. We've got the right. word any word. Uh, right. Well, and, we've and got then the, the word faith. The, yeah, the Bible. <laughs> right. right. Or the like, Bible. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, Bible. the word That's, of God. I mean, right. yep. yeah. So one way that I, that I was thinking about this, like as y'all were talking, was that he, when someone says water, Right. Mm -hmm. You sort of what comes to mind for me is someone in a desert, yes. right, who is dying of thirst, um, calling for water. And the source of that water, if you are that thirsty, right, could be you don't necessarily care where it comes from. Right. Yeah. Um, right. His expectation is that the word would be that water for him. Mm -hmm. But it's not right. Mm -hmm. It's something else. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned the the emptiness uh, concept from from Buddhism, Nick, because I was that was also kind of bouncing around mm -hmm. in my mind a little bit as you were talking, um, because the feeling of emptiness as something that causes despair. Right. As being right. like if we were to say that that thirst could also be described as like a kind of emptiness. Right. Mm -hmm. That that's what he's looking for. Like that. That is different from like that is the according to Buddhism, the incorrect way to think right. about emptiness. Right. That it's that craving um, that is dukkha. Right. That is that suffering in in Buddhism. Right. Mm -hmm. Suffering in Buddhism is not just physical pain or sadness or something like that. It's being dissatisfied, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's this feeling of craving, like something is not quite right here. Right. Um, and, and so he's, that's what he's in right now. Right? right. He's in that, he's in this state of, of craving where, yeah, maybe if he had the, the tools in front of him, maybe if he read Thich Nhat Hanh or something like that, yeah, right? Yeah. He would rethink this feeling of emptiness, right? And see, em see everything as empty of inherent nature, right? right. As the Heart Sutra says. So, um, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting point, I think. I just want to put a, a pin there and tie a string to it that's going to to carry us another couple albums down the road Yep. <laughs> that this, Aubrey this idea <laughs> of emptiness and, and the, the absence of desire um, 
in a strange way is going to find much fuller expression when we get to it's all crazy it's all false yeah, yeah. Okay. but yeah. in an explicitly christian context there mm-hmm. which seems mm-hmm. backwards if we're here in what seems to be an yeah. entirely christian environment where that longing is seen as a problem then in a couple albums we're going to see him even talking about jesus directly as experiencing this lack of emptiness in the way that he's experiencing here now. Yes. I just yeah, want to pin that yeah. and we'll come back to it That's a great. long time yeah. from now. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited <laughs> for that. Yeah. Cool. So <clears throat> another but thing. To, but to also pin and, and thread. Well, okay. Actually, Stephen, go ahead. Man, uh, all of a sudden, our, that meme with the guy with the stuff on the walls from some show oh, I've never seen. From, from uh, It's Always, it's always sunny, sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Fair. We've earned That's it. That's us. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the, that statement, I, I said water expecting the word would satisfy my thirst, can also function, I think, as a kind of meta comment about what he's doing in writing the lyrics for this album. Yes. Presumably, he has left this church yep. before they started writing these songs. He spent the entire first six tracks wallowing in this yep. water imagery representing exactly. this church that Thank you. he got into. And now he's like, okay, I'm writing these lyrics. I said water, expecting the word would satisfy my first, as if he would stop feeling homesick if he wrote songs about it. it yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that's kind of where I was going to go as we start to unpack the next line. Yeah. Talking all about the second and third when I haven't understood the first. What what is he counting here, guys? I have a thought, but what is he counting? Oh, in, I want to hear your eyes? thoughts, Nick, because I I have one idea. I think I've had about ten ideas, and my brain has like shut down most of them. So I, I got one right now. I swear, I thought of this prior to reading the genius unvalidated annotation, but that also validated me. So dang it, yeah. I didn't call it beforehand. But yeah. I think it's talking about the commandments. Hmm. I think it's valid. Okay, so talking all about the second and third Bible study here. What's what are the first three commandments? Yeah, so so the second and third are well, and uh, this is King James version. Take that mm-hmm. for what it's worth. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Mm-hmm. Hold on to that one for a second. Thou shalt not take the name of that the Lord thy God in vain. And mm-hmm. the first is thou shalt not. Thou shall have no other gods before me. Oh, right. Man. So we have seen, again, looking at the first half of the album and, and yeah, yeah, really just the first half of the album, him grappling with this sense of, in a sense, becoming his own graven image by having mm. being crowned the grasshopper king mm-hmm. and grappling with that. Like, how do I handle myself? being propped up by my fans while also grappling with these things and feeling empty, feeling this extreme dissatisfaction, extreme disconnect from what I thought I was supposed to be getting from these words. So I'm so obsessed with myself as this graven image. I'm so obsessed with, and then calling out to God in all these different ways, which because it's not satisfying anything, certainly feels like he's calling out in vain. like vainly using the the words yeah when really you need to hold on to the lord's love yourself innately first and foremost like before you speak it yeah so going so going with this idea that Mm -hmm. the 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 uh second third and first here are the commandments Mm -hmm. 
Um, to me, I think one, and maybe this is oversimplified or, or too biographical, but I mean, yeah. well, <laughs> we can't, <laughs> I don't know if we can say anything is too biographical, sure. uh, you know, any reading of these lyrics, but so talking all about the second and third, those in some ways are sort of throwaways, right? Because mm-hmm. he hasn't understood the first. So the, right. what, whatever the second and third are, like it's inconsequential. He hasn't understood you shall have no other gods before me. And I yes. wonder if this is perhaps in some ways a moment where we see kind of peeking through Aaron's, uh, you know, what it, in later albums will become like a more broad questioning, right? Mm-hmm. Of the idea of God, of the idea of certainty, existence of God, all of these <laughs> things that maybe this comes from his sort of uh, non-traditional religious upbringing where yeah. he is, has learned about Allah and he's learned now. And I mean, many scholars of religion, both those who are you know non-religious scholars, as well as Christian theologians, Muslim theologians, mm-hmm. Jewish philosophers of religion, will say that Yahweh, the Jewish God, the Christian God, and the Muslim God are the same God. Right? They're the those gods are not of Abraham, different, yeah. Those are not different gods. Like, for, I mean, right. certainly for Muslims, it, it is the same God, right? Um, you know, I think that, that some Christians have a problem with that. But even, I mean, man, I've been to some conservative churches that, that uh, have started teaching that. Right, that mm-hmm. Allah and God are God. They're both. They're. I mean, Allah is just the Arabic word for God. for God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, but but still, I you know, I wonder if this could be some sort of reference to that, right? Where, uh, I mean, especially in the late '90s, I, I don't think a lot of Christian communities were on that page necessarily yeah. yet. Right. Um, no, so, but so prior, we, yeah. I mean, for for maybe better, but definitely for worse, like m- a lot of Americans just never even imagined anything about a Muslim's life until after 2001. Yes. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. And so, yeah, so I wonder if that has something to do with it. Like if there's mm-hmm. some something about his kind of multi-faith upbringing Right. That has him questioning this idea in some way. Yeah. I want to roll with that and say, yes, I think that the first three commandments of the Decalogue are definitely at play here. I want to say for almost identical reasons that the Trinity makes just as much sense, Mm. not as an alternate interpretation, but a simultaneous meaning. Yes. Because if, if we're talking about him leaving a church that is a a Christian church and b a Pentecostal church of some kind. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's talking all about the second and third persons mm-hmm. of the Trinity, mm-hmm. about Jesus yep. and about the Holy Spirit all yep. the time. Yep. When I haven't even understood God the Father in that that simple essence, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a really good reading too. I yeah. love and, that actually. Yeah. And so that is going to tie into things that Aaron is going to come back to at different times in English and Hebrew and Arabic throughout the rest of their career <laughs> yeah, about the oneness all. of God, right? So this is yeah. almost like a, a Shema moment. You know, mm, hero is real, the Lord, mm. our God, the Lord is one. Yes. Is the first thing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, that's great. That that oh man. I love that so much. I love that line now. The when I haven't understood the first carries so much weight. Because yeah, it does. I, I feel like this is another pin that we're gonna have to drop here mm-hmm. to carry through. And I wanna come back to this uh in those later moments when he is raising these questions about the nature of God, the oneness of God. Yes. Does God exist? All of this. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so good. So we go from that extremely loaded line into all of a sudden story time with (laughs) the book of Jonah. (laughs) So um, do you mind if I just give a quick, I promise, a quick recap of the story of the book of Jonah? Should we we read the the lyrics first? Yes, we should. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Jonah, where's that boat going? Your ship set with eager sails? There's a swirling storm soon blowing, and no use, fishermen, in rowing from the consecrated whale. <laughs> yeah. So, Nick, I'm curious, as a person who didn't grow up saturated with the Bible, yeah. how, how did you encounter this story, and what image comes to mind when you hear the name Jonah? So it's funny. Uh, most of my exposure to the story of Jonah is <laughs> this song and a song called "The Whale and Jonah" by a band from Columbus, Ohio, called the Sidekicks. Um, oh yeah, and, they're a great band. Yeah, very good band, and yeah. uh, that's a great song. Um, so most of it's been in my adolescence and my adulthood. Yeah, uh, I was aware that he was eaten by a whale because that's kind of what happens in Pinocchio. Yeah. Right, um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, I'm positive Pinocchio was riffing off of this. Story. Yeah, I'm positive as well. But um, yeah, I would love a recap because I intentionally avoided the recap because I wanted yeah. to hear it from y'all. Yeah. So, OK, the book of Jonah is uh, he's one of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Um it's a weird, quirky little book. It's one of the funniest books in the Bible, I think. Yeah. Um, and like humorously funny? Or yeah, just a laugh a minute. Yeah, no, humorously <laughs> funny. It's also strange, but it is like, it's yeah. actually kind of funny if you like it, it, allow it yourself to think the Bible can be funny. So it's in four <laughs> chapters. Okay. And the basic plot is there's this guy, Jonah. He's called by God to be a prophet to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is this uh, superpower of its time that in short order is going to decimate 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. They wipe out the majority of the nation. But at this moment, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh 
and to preach good news to the people there in this city. And Jonah says, nah, none of that. I have no interest in going and just getting myself killed. There's no reason for him to believe that he's going to be welcomed. Especially yeah, he, welcomed. Thinks, he thinks Go God's sending him into like the jaws of the, the lion. Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I'm not okay. going there. Yeah. So imagine whatever, like from an American standpoint, I know plenty of you listening are not in the United States, but in whatever country you're in, imagine like some kind of global enemy and going to their capital city and like speaking to the powers that be there. And whether that's a welcoming sounding invitation. <laughs> right. Or yeah. it's sort of like it's like if, uh, you know, Yoda said to Luke Skywalker, like, you're just you're going to go to the Death Star, yeah. but you're not going to like you're not going to shoot it. You're going <laughs> to land. You're going to walk in. You're going <laughs> to you're going to like, talk to the stormtroopers and Darth Vader and like and the emperor and like nicely convince them that they're. Of the light Wrong. side of the force yeah. and why yeah, I should exactly. really just yeah. change sides. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's his invitation to which he responds by getting on a boat headed for Tarshish. Tarshish is the westernmost point of the known world. So okay. it, like we're thinking in a Mediterranean context, there on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean, you go across mm -hmm. the largest body of water in anyone's imagination and way out at the edge of Spain before you hit like the end of the universe that we now know is the Atlantic Ocean yep. is this place called Tarshish. So he's getting as far away from Nineveh as possible. Mm -hmm. So Jonah, where's that boat going? To the end of the earth is the answer to that question. Yeah. As far away as you can from the call of God. So ship set with eager sails, right? He, Jonah gets in this thing. He's ready to go. It's just like a merchant vessel. The other guys on there are just doing their jobs. They're going on this sailing trip with their cargo yeah. or their fishing poles. Did they have fishing mm -hmm. poles in the ancient world? I don't know. Mm. Whatever. I think they use nets. Yeah. yeah nets yeah. and spears a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, a fierce storm rises up around the water. And somehow in the course of that, everyone thinks they're going to drown just because this natural disaster has come upon them. Mm -hmm. and to at least keep their boat afloat, they start throwing stuff out of the boat, thinking, well, maybe it was too top heavy. And if we can like, get some more buoyancy, we might survive this storm and at least keep our lives, even if we lose all the profit from this trip. Okay. Meanwhile, Jonah is thinking, oh, no, this is not just a regular storm. This is divine judgment coming on me. <laughs> okay. So at this moment, we should remember that. Uh, both because it's significant for understanding the story of Jonah in the Bible, but also because it's significant for the fact that Aaron seems obsessed with the figure of Noah. He's going to come back a bunch of times yep. at different moments in his lyrics that this should all be ringing bells about Noah's Ark and the whole world being flooded and how at the end of that story, God makes a promise, a rainbow sign, if you will, yeah. that mm -hmm. he is not going to flood the earth again. So now here we have this guy who's directly disobeying the command of God and God is sending a flood on him personally, not the world, but just this one dude. <laughs> so right. God is holding up his end of the promise more or less, but Jonah like realizes this is judgment coming on him. So yeah. to spare the lives of all the people on board who don't know him from Adam, uh, he jumps off, assuming that he is committing suicide by jumping into the chaotic ocean. Wait, no hold on. Of survival. Wait, one second. Yeah. D wait, d don't they, don't the crew members cast lots and decide that he's the problem and throw him overboard? Oh, 
I don't know about casting lots. Man, I should read the Bible. Um, <laughs> I think I think that's what they do. I think that they... I think they do throw them overboard. I don't remember the lots. Okay, now we have to look this up. We may edit okay. this part out. Okay, in the... Because I don't think he jumps off by himself. I think they throw him overboard. In the breakdown from Wikipedia that's copied into Genius... Uh, Nineveh resists God order, flees on the ship, the sea, the strong storm. And Jonah knew that the storm was the wrath of God. Jonah told the ship's crew to throw him overboard to appease God and the storm. Jonah was then swallowed by a big fish, commonly referenced as a whale. He spent three days inside the fish praying to God. Yeah, okay. No, they do cast lots. <clears throat> okay. So here's, here's what happens. Okay, let me read it from the word itself. Great. The captain approached him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call upon your God. Perhaps this God will consider us so that we may not perish. Come, said the sailors to one another. Let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity that is upon us. Okay, so they're all assuming that like this is some sort of divine judgment, even though they have different ideas maybe of, of what that actually means. Um, so they're going to cast lots to see who to throw over. Oh, and Jonah. No, they're totally right, Joel. I'm a liar, and and <laughs> you you win Bible trivia today. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Um, yeah. Now it should be said, I think that it's not just like rolling the dice and appealing to random chance. I think the idea of no. casting lots is that like the hand of God is going to. It's a kind of divination. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So it's them figuring out whose fault it is that God is trying to sink their right. ship. They did not draw exactly. straws. They just used the only thing they thought they had to define this. Okay. Got right. it. Right. Cool. Well, I mean, um, it is. So just to be clear, it is. It is a, a thing of chance, but it is not interpreted that way. Right. right. Well, of course. Sense. Actually, yeah. it's chance. They well, in the Read story it as yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 yeah. Just yeah, to yeah. be clear about that. Yeah. Yes. So well, anyway, it's the same as it's the same as tarot. It, yeah, it's actually random, or, but tea leaves yeah. exactly. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't say the same, but it's similar too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So okay, whatever. so he's swallowed by a big fish that's yes. often called a whale. Yes, Thrown where in the he ocean. can live <laughs> somehow. Yep. Um, I'm going to call it a whale shark. Right. Okay. The biggest sure. fish in the sea. It yeah. doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody like the Israelites were not a seafaring people. Like they didn't mm -hmm. have an extensive, yeah. you know, no. bestiary of all the things that lived no. under the water. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no. Um so anyway, he gets swallowed by this giant fish. He's in the belly of the fish for three days. And the entirety of Jonah chapter two is a prayer. It's it's just from the mouth of Jonah. He's praying. Um, essentially, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because, man, I said I was going to be short and I'm such a liar. Uh, <laughs> but he's he's essentially changing his mind. He's changing his ways. He's turning back towards God. Uh, it's a it's really actually a beautiful chapter just just to read. And. Uh, but at the end of this prayer, uh, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. And as soon as he says salvation is from the Lord, the next verse is, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So we get yeah. divine storm. We get the big fish. We get him praying. We get Jonah vomited onto dry land. And 
in like the children's pop-up Bible versions of this, that's where the story ends because that was yes, the cool, exciting exactly. part with the right. animal in it. Right. That's yes. basically just the very first part of the story here. Yeah. The first half, yeah, right, it's right, the right, first yeah. half. So the second yeah. half is that he goes to Nineveh, he preaches to them and they actually repent. Right. So ah. sparing the details, when God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways, he relented from the disaster he had threatened to bring upon them. Jonah talks to the people of Nineveh. They stop being so evil. And God's like, oh, yeah, you're cool. And, and then they're fine. And Jonah is ticked. So Jonah chapter four, the fourth part of the book, is him just like sulking on a hillside, mm -hmm. just complaining that God would show kindness to these people that he would rather have been wiped off the face of the planet. Right. Okay. And and that's where it ends. So there's this like quirky thing that actually kind of sounds like it could be from me without you lyrics. Yeah. Where he um he like is hot and Jonah creates what is it? Um then Jonah left the city and sat down east of it where he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. He's waiting for like fire to come down from heaven. God mm -hmm. is Merciful to him, he he appointed a vine and a grip to provide shelter over Jonah's head. Mm -hmm. And then when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. So he gave him shade. He took away the shade. Um, Move and, on, guy. I'll give you this day of sulking. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And That's then funny. Jonah says, it's better for me to die than live. And then God says, have you any right to be angry about the plant? I do. He replied, I'm angry enough to die. And then this is the one of the weirdest endings of anything in the Bible. This is the last sentence of the book of Jonah. But the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you neither tended nor made grow. It sprang up in a night and perished in a night. So should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well? <laughs> and that's <the> end. <laughs> I got a bunch of confused people and a whole lot of cows. Can't I care about them too? <laughs> Bovine, you know. Wow, that's great. So, man, uh, we just wasted all of y'all's like half hour of time recapping this Bible yeah. story. No, no, it's but, it's helpful though. I I important. almost I almost don't want to parse it too much just in this lyrical section because it really is just a you know four line recap of the portion of that story that he thinks is relevant to the rest of the song. Yeah. So if, if for some reason it is not worth keeping all of that in the episode, let me just tell you, dear listener, go read the book of Jonah, then come back and listen to the song and let these lines be loaded yes. with the whole narrative. Yes. Yeah. Well, so I think that like, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting insertion, mm -hmm. right? The story of Jonah. Um, not only because of the water, of course. Yep. <laughs> But because of the question it raises of, is Aaron sort of comparing himself in a way to the figure of Jonah? That would be an interesting comparison because he, he also is leaving, yep. right? But when you bring Jonah into that narrative from Aaron's life, it makes it seem like he's leaving or running away against God's will or yeah. something, mm -hmm. right? Which may, I mean, maybe that is how he felt or, or thought about it. That like he, 
he felt a, some sort of conviction that God wants him to be in a church community, but he's he's not, or or right. I don't know, so, something like that. But it, yeah, it oh, definitely sure. throws an interesting uh, kind of twist on what's going on here in the song. Yeah, definitely. I, there's there's plenty of times that Aaron will compare himself to to some figure in the Bible, and in, in a direct way, the grammar of this complicates it because he asks a question to Jonah like he's having a yeah. casual conversation. Yes. Jonah, where's that right. boat going? Even so, I still think the most plausible reading is that he sees himself in that figure. Or he's or he's asking, where's that boat going? Because he wants to get on it. Yes, yeah. yes. He, yeah, he's yeah, comparing like himself to Jonah rather than actually calling himself Jonah. Right. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, yeah. But I think it's also a fantastic setup for the next lines. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, let's get to the chorus. But yeah. if he's comparing himself with Jonah, either in identifying himself as that figure or setting himself as parallel, like having a chat with him about to jump yes. on the same boat about to hit the ocean, it implies that there's actually like a divine command to go do something to talk to some people right and this is actually not quite the imagery of being inside of a church community but more being like an evangelist being sent out on yeah. a mission yeah, by yeah, the church. yeah yeah and we've seen some indications of that already in the album especially say in disaster tourism mm -hmm. um but maybe this is a different kind of mission this is not like a trip to amsterdam but maybe this is actually what he sees himself doing in this band right in me without you yep. and i've heard interview clips from around this time 2003 2004 2005 or so where aaron is just sort of caught backstage and and he talks about like yeah i don't i don't really care like what we're doing with this band like i guess we make music and that's fine but like i, I just want people like to know about god he's very upfront about saying things like that at this time period so if he sees what he's doing in the band almost like like the group getting on their tour bus and traveling is like this ship setting sail. And he's going to some people that need to hear this message from God who are otherwise going to meet destruction. Then for him to be avoiding that by leaving the church or by leaving, maybe he's even thinking about just leaving you without you. We're like, okay, we did one album. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a joke. I don't know if I can really keep this thing up. And yeah. at this time, right. I mean, he's, he's joining the simple way. He's contemplating a very different kind of life if he actually situates himself in this community in Philadelphia um, that probably would not allow him to continue to be on the road and in the tour. So you can think of a few mm -hmm. different like points, divine calling that he might be avoiding. I just want to say that. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. we get to the chorus. Mm -hmm. So there's lots to do with the chorus of this song, both coming out of Jonah with an almost positive direct lyrical reference to another song right out of the gate. Before we get into all that, and I want to hear both of you read this. I want to just note something really cool that happens in the music, right? Yes. As we get to the chorus. It's unlike anything else on this album. This whole song kind of breaks the rules that the band has set up. So most of the time, um, especially Dan in his bass parts has been very cautious to avoid a lot of half steps. This has been a recurring theme I brought up that there's like a lot of thirds and whole tones, but the half steps tend to be avoided. So there's none of this sort of yearning, leaning, like desiring to get back to the home base. Right. However, you want to read that as a musical language that like doesn't lead back towards home. Right. Um, but <laughs> as I've said before, it's kind of funky. Like you can kind of dance to this, but here, like 
I don't know, like my my ancestors, as far as I can tell from like, you know, cheap searches on the internet are mostly from Switzerland and England. So we're talking like Northern Europeans. So mm-hmm. finally, someone is speaking my language on this song that your hind end is made for sitting and thinking and being sad, not for getting up and shaking it around, right? I am not from like a dancing stock of people. Sure. And so all <laughs> like the funky rhythms on this album are interesting to me at a distance. But as soon as we get to this song, this song is just sad from start to finish. Yes. There's nothing about it that has that kind of like groove to it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, is the way that Ricky is handling the rhythms for sure. But plenty of it is the absence of this flat seven to one kind of just like easygoing, fun baseline. It just isn't right. here. Mm-hmm. But what we do get in the chorus of this song is this really compelling baseline that goes like this. Mm-hmm. Now, there's just kind of a big cloud of sound from the guitars above that. There's, I think, some like sort of post-rock textury stuff going on. Yes. And there's this big fat chord that doesn't it doesn't quite land as like a pure triad. There's something else going on, mm-hmm. but there's not another baseline like this anywhere on this album. And yeah. the first part is just outlining a, an E minor chord, but starting at the top of it. So B, 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 G, E, G. And, uh, and then the next part, I love this. Mm-hmm. That to me is such a surprising sound coming out of the bass. And because it's such an unusual sound, I have to mention the two other places that that figure is is sort of prominently appears in music history. So one is in um, Tchaikovsky's score to Swan Lake. This is the main theme Mm. that the swan uh, is is related to. And I think Tchaikovsky is is in B minor. That little figure at the end is sort of mystical, magical sounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Is the same musical gesture effectively as the bass line. And then it repeats again. I, wow. I've never thought of those two in the same moment, but they both grab you. Like yeah. I could listen to that part, that specific part of Swan Lake yeah. on repeat. Oh, for sure. And I can listen to this song on repeat easier than almost any other song on the album, which is funny. I didn't even think to call it a favorite song when we were calling those out, but it, it grabs you. This moment of the chorus grabs you in a really Mm -hmm. fascinating way. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the music demands that you sit up and pay attention because something serious is being said here. I know plenty of serious things have been said throughout the album, I mean, really dark, heavy stuff has been talked about on this album. But musically, this is maybe the strongest moment up to this point, and maybe on the entire record, where the music itself demands that you sit still and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other other direct place that that sound comes from, and I'm not remembering... I'm not remembering what key this is in originally, so forgive me... Uh, film buffs out there that I'm going to play this in the wrong key. But the other famous 
um, example of this is the Imperial March from The Empire Strikes Back. Mm. <laughs> um, okay. Right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like the children's bedtime version <laughs> right. of the Imperial March, but yep. it's, it's um, okay. <laughs> so insert uh, fast forward to rainbow signs and the mm-hmm. phrase imperial cloud. Yep. Let mm. that sit there. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zip back to this song. And, and the fascinating <sighs> thing about that figure um, is that this actual sound is. Oh, we're going to play the game again. Is that a major or a minor triad? I'm going with neither. <laughs> That's a safe answer. I, I don't. It feels minor, but yeah, I'll go with neither, either, <laughs> no, or as well. If you just take those pitches and don't surround them with anything, straight up major chord. Really? Okay, wow. Yes, okay. I hear. I hear it now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I hear it now. Yeah. Right. Or like in Star Wars. Right. Definitely sounds minor. But if you just play the tune and don't harmonize it with anything. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Forward major chord. But it's the way that it's decorated that makes it feel minor, even though the pitches themselves aren't actually. So we have this sort of heavy intensity going on down here. Also, this is a song that is functionally in E minor. It has E as a pitch center. All of my exit unfair has E as the center, but we have in the chorus, a chord built off F as the lowest point. Hmm. So moving up a half step for the root. And in fact, that whole second chord that has the bass line going, in fact, as far as I can tell from just like trying to tease out the pitches on this thing is, Now, one of the high guitars kind of hangs out on this B up top. And then when the bass goes down, that high guitar B just sort of sustains. It's an ostinato there. Yeah. And so what you get is an F in the bass, a B in the treble, which is a tritone. So this is one of these rare moments of just straightforward dissonance on this album that also has this chromatic weightiness that you hear in Tchaikovsky and John Williams. So all that's happening and it just feels so cool in a way that is just different than the rest of this record. And and in part because of what Ricky is not doing during this moment, he he is playing, Mm -hmm. but as he, as it transitions out of the chorus, Mm -hmm. you hear him come back in with the double time hits. The tempo doesn't change. But he is yeah. leaving all this wide open space for us to yes. feel that musical tension. Yes. It's so mm-hmm. fascinating. Oh, I love well, it. Uh, and it sounds cloudy too, right? It does. It's this yep. big yeah. whoosh of sound right on the words. The cloud, right? Like, right. Yeah. So here we go. Here's the actual text of it. And then I'll let you all say what you think is going on. Sure. So just like the clouds bring a darkness and a hard rain's going to fall. I felt the crowds bring a loneliness. A hard rain's gonna fall. Stop there for now. That's effectively the chorus, right? There's yep. a post-chorus, if that can be a part of a song. What yeah, do you think of that yeah. much of it? 
No, that that much is is what I wanted to talk about because it's contextualized by the Jonah conjuring up the Jonah image. The sensation of the divine conjuring up a otherworldly storm that's going to kill you if you uh, do not do something about it. Yep. But then again, we get a, a reference to a song, in my opinion, that we've already had referenced, which is now I've seen a darkness. Now they bring a darkness mm-hmm. that feels yep. very much like the uh, Bonnie Prince Billy song coming right. back to rear its yeah. horrifyingly depressing head again. Yep, <laughs> um, sure. Yeah. Well, and there's also I mean, we also have to mention mm-hmm. uh, the other reference that was also paired with Bonnie Prince Billy yep. the last time we talked about this. Yes. And that's Bob Dylan. Yes. And his song, A Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall. Yep. Um, freewheeling, freewheeling Bob Dylan. Yep. Uh, 1963. I don't know if the if the darkness line is actually a reference to it, but it, the fact that they were paired right next to each other. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. It's too good to, to pass up. It's yeah, too good totally. to pass up. I think it's too good to be an accident. Yep. He knows full well what he was doing by pairing those lines on the last album. Mm-hmm. And to say, I see a darkness is not a typical phrase. That's not how we really no. talk. A I see darkness, the darkness yeah. maybe, but a darkness is weird. And so it seems to me it, it has to be intentional to put these two together again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those are the references. I do want to parse a little bit of, of kind of the, literary devices going on here so just like the clouds now the way i have it notated it says they bring a darkness the steven the way you read it you didn't say they so that makes me wonder it it does not have the word they the the clouds lyrics okay cool probably does say it that sounds right yeah it, it does but at the same time i feel like leaving they out implies like like the clouds that's now a simile Mm-hmm. Right, bringing a darkness and a hard rain is going to fall. So that's a metaphor continuing the simile. I felt the crowd bring a loneliness. So again, we get this this emptiness when you're talking about interacting with humans that should yeah. fill you with something, but instead he's feeling lonely. And a hard rain, a hard rain is going to fall. Poof! Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. So I think it is. I mean. I think it's worth talking just a little bit about the Bob mm-hmm. Dylan song. Um, Please. You know, w- without getting too sidetracked, but it is a, it is an interesting kind of parallel, I think, in a way to what is happening here. So sort of the the conceit of the Bob Dylan song is that you have these verses that begin with two questions. Oh, where have you been, my blue eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? And then you have the reply in in the verse, right? Of where the son has has been, right? And then verse two, what did you see, my blue-eyed son? What did you see, my darling young one? Right? And the things that um that the son sees are these fantastical images, right? So Mm-hmm. In verse one, it's, I've stumbled on the side of 12 misty mountains. I've walked and I've crawled on six crooked highways. I've stepped in the middle of seven sad forests. I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans. I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard. I mean, wow. <laughs> right? Um, 
And then in verse two, I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it. I saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it. I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping. I saw a room full of men with their hammers a bleeding. I saw a white ladder all covered with water. I saw 10,000 talkers whose <laughs> tongues were all broken. I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. I mean, yeah. Wow. Uh, it, it, we could go on. There's there's five. Yes. Yeah. Six verses, something like that. Right. So, but, yeah, but yeah, that yeah. gives you the gist. And then, and then in between each verse, you have uh, the chorus where um, Dylan is singing uh, and it's a hard and it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rains are gonna to fall. Gonna fall. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Going to fall. Um, well, and the closest he gets to offering any right. sort of commentary on what that chorus is even doing is <coughs> is actually in the third verse, right? Heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world. Heard a hundred drummers whose hands... No, sorry. I heard the sound of a thunder. It roared out a warning. Heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world. Yeah. At least that's mm -hmm. like the closest like destructive water imagery we get in the verses yeah, of right, Dylan's song. Right. Um, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Which I'm not going to pretend to like be able to parse what what Bob Dylan's talking about here. Um, yeah, there's but, a lot there's a lot of social movement things that he's referencing, yeah. and this is not a Bob Dylan Bob uh, podcast. No. So uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, I would, it's, yeah, I would encourage you as a listener go listen to that Bob Dylan track maybe like a few times on repeat, and then yes. come back and listen to my exit unfair and see how this chorus hits you. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, you could. So one way to read this is like the hard rain that Dylan is talking about is this like f literal flood of social injustice, right? He's referencing yep. lynching. He's referencing uh, poverty. He's referencing, uh, you know, all just unjust war, all kinds of, of things are going mm -hmm. on. Right. And it's, it's overwhelming. Um, and so, if you take that context uh, and and put it into the Me Without You track, um, I think there's something like one way to understand the hard rain is as this kind of overwhelming sense of dread <laughs> in a way. Um, yeah. You know, that, that this in, you know, in the Dylan song, you have this bright eyed, young, you know, darling one right this son right who the way that each of those verses begins it's it's like you know whoever is asking that question is asking it of someone who is innocent or presumed to be innocent in a way yeah right or unsullied by the world or something like that and then they've seen all of these horrible things um mm -hmm. and there's something that is overwhelming about that loss of of innocence i think i mean that's another part of what's going on in in the dylan song um yeah and so i yeah so i'm just kind of thinking i guess out loud here about uh what that might do for our understanding of this chorus yeah hmm. and this album um, in a way yeah because again the the next line i felt the crowd bring a loneliness yeah, that's yeah. to me very much referencing back to the misguided insects, you know, mm -hmm. getting people people from 
seven floor balcony. Yeah. 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 I think, I think the crowd in that case uh, makes as much sense talking about actual crowds coming to shows, right? Cause this is yep. the folks he's surrounded by now. Um, I think it can talk about uh, that this church that he's mm-hmm. left, right. That this crowd brought an emptiness. I think it can also just refer to like just the mass of people in the world in general. Right. I yes. mean, if, if if like he sees part of his mission that he's abandoning, if we're going to to sideline uh, or, or parallel Jonah here as going out and having like a mission for all mm-hmm. these people, he he gets among the people he's supposed to have a mission, whether he considers that like the audience to a band's show or just him in the world talking to folks. And he just feels empty when yeah. he talks to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that um, feels especially fair to say, given the mental health struggle that we've seen being a a undercurrent of much of this album as well because we are evolutionarily predisposed to want to help and interact with each other as Mm -hmm. social creatures but when you have the illness depression and associated illnesses that doesn't always happen when Mm -hmm. when you're in an episode of of deep depression like sometimes it's like i wish i felt the good feelings that i did when i was interacting with the the masses yeah but i just mm-hmm. don't yeah because this other thing this wave this this cloud is over yeah me. yes yeah. I, yeah I think that's definitely at play here i also think that this probably intentionally maybe subconsciously is is pulling on um our old pal soren kierkegaard again mm-hmm. i don't want to make it overplay this here but kierkegaard has an essay called the crowd is untruth which mm-hmm. is pretty short. If you want to look it up online, you can find it for free and, and read it. Um, but it just, it, it's almost a litany where every section begins with the statement, the crowd is untruth. There is therefore no one who has more contempt for what he is to be a human being than those who make it their profession to lead the crowd. <laughs> There's a zinger. Or yep. the crowd is untruth. Yeah. Therefore was Christ crucified because he, even though he addressed himself to all, would not have to do with the crowd because he would not in any way let a crowd help him because he, in this respect, absolutely pushed away, not would not found a party or allow balloting, but would be what he was, the truth, which relates itself to the single individual. Wow. Yeah. The crowd is untruth, and I could weep in every case. I can learn to long for the eternal. Whenever I think about our age's misery, even compared to the ancient world's greatest misery, in that daily press and anonymity make our age even more insane with help from the public, which is really an abstraction, and so on and so on and so forth. Kierkegaard is just hammering this home Mm -hmm. that there is an emptiness in these masses of people that is not present in in the, the bare fact of the individual standing before God. Yeah, there's also a sense in which I think Kierkegaard. uh, (laughs) I mean, Kierkegaard was definitely um, not a fan of mainstream Christianity in Denmark. He thought it was a joke. (laughs) Um, He absolutely despised it. And so there is there is also a sense in which, um, you know, following the crowd or going is, is a betrayal of your own authenticity right your own authentic um uh uh experience of christianity and and um you know that's what i get from from what he's saying about about jesus uh and and the crowd i mean the 
the relationship between the crowd and Jesus is also kind of making me, I mean, that's an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about. Um, like this word, this word crowd. Yeah. It just has <laughs> so many layers to yeah. it. But I mean, in the, in the, the gospels and the stories of Jesus's ministry, I mean, the crowd is, they are the people on the fringes who do not understand what is happening. Right. Yeah. They are, um, they are there for the spectacle. Um, but they are not there to be made disciples, right? There's a, there's a stark distinction between the crowd who just shows up when Jesus shows up in their town, um, just to see like what's happening and, or maybe they're right. just even like passing by on the edge of the crowd that's gathered. Right. And they just keep walking. Um, there's yeah. a, a strong distinction that's made in the gospels between those people and the people whom Jesus has called to follow him, Jesus himself, right? When he's speaking in parables and so forth, right? He tells the disciples, you are different, right? You are set apart from these, these other people, right? Mm -hmm. um, you well, have been, it has been revealed to you what is going on. Yeah. And think about the actual biographical data that we have, which I admit may be in the wrong sequence and I may not have the story straight, but as sure. far as I understand, if this is a narrative about leaving a faith community and trying to find a more authentic expression of his faith, the actual movement is probably from this large Pentecostal megachurch, which would be mm -hmm. all about spectacle, both in just the way that like the service is presented, but also right. a, a, sincere hope for miracles to happen mm -hmm, mm -hmm, when you get together in church. Yep. Moving from that to joining the simple way, which is this community that is taken sort of an unofficial vow of poverty and is living on the street and trying to minister to people who mm -hmm. have nothing mm -hmm. is about as far as you can get from looking for some sort of spectacle, right? Yeah. But if we yeah. can revisit you know, the discussion from Paper Hanger and this moment that we thought maybe was corny, but maybe we're yeah. not so corny, like like seeing an, a life transformed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is is pretty miraculous. Yeah, totally. Um, and so so if those are the dynamics at play in his life, then the idea of the crowd as it's presented in the gospels is this outer ring of people that don't really get what Jesus is doing, but there is right. this inner circle that are really following him, would make perfect intuitive sense to what Aaron is seeing in his own life right now. Should we talk about, we talk about the post chorus? Yeah, now I'm just hearing the drums leading into, and yes. she'd always wave me down, but afraid yeah. I might need her, I dragged her around. It's best to keep close set cloth and ash in a whitewashed town. Which, what a mouthful of the last couple lines in that, that <laughs> post chorus. Oh, I love it. Well, and let's finish out the line, right? Yeah. She wore that phony smile on her face, I guess like a bandage on a wounded place, while I kept the keys to every old lock just in just case. Just in case. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> that, so, it, oh, man. 
lyrically, we have we've just returned to the world of A to B life. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. in the post chorus. Well, that was going to be my question is, is it Amanda? Likely. Mm-hmm. But correct me if I'm wrong there. She is also used to discuss. The church sometimes, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's your double meaning. Um, yeah. And also, just to keep the nautical theme. What do mariners wear around their necks? Albatrosses, right? So this is great. And then it also think <laughs> conjures up to me the song Milestone by um, Brand New a little bit here. Wait, now, the milestone isn't a feminine presence per se, but it's yeah. weighing you down, um, reminding you of something. Mm-hmm. So I dragged her around. Uh, talk, Guys, talk to me about sackcloth and ash. <laughs> so <laughs> you're up. Yeah. Uh yeah, I mean so that was that was uh a practice in mm-hmm. biblical times uh that represented mourning, repentance, uh some kind of abasement. It, usually this was something that the prophets would do uh in in periods of national crisis. Right? So it was right. a way of sort of like uh, humbling yourself before God, right? To put on sack- sackcloth and uh, and ashes, right? To to basically like, um, yeah, to to show your humility, uh, yeah, before before God. And then the whitewashed town, seemingly, is a, a reference probably to multiple biblical moments. But uh, Matthew twenty three twenty seven has "Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean." Yeah, 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 yeah. So in an unclean place, basically in a place that looks lovely. And again, right. we could see this potentially as a critique of the community he's leaving. Yeah, I, that's how I would read it, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's best to keep these things that help humble you. Yeah. In these areas, in these places. Yeah. But then we get this. She wore a phony smile on her face. So it's also like, OK, are you holding those things for unclean reasons? Is this just mm-hmm. hedging your bet? <laughs> in a sense, um, I guess like a bandage on a wounded place. So that to me is whether this is Amanda or not, that is putting us right back in the language landscape of A to B life with the interesting, intimate face imagery. Yeah. Mm. Wearing yeah. a phony smile on her face like a bandage on a wounded place while I kept the keys to every old lock just in case, which is a lovely lime- rhyming moment but i also used to do that a lot with like old friends houses that i had a key to like their parents moved mm-hmm. a long time ago like i have keys i don't even know where they go to anymore and yeah. i just don't throw them <laughs> away <laughs> yeah 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 it's a, i've yeah. always loved that line because it's yeah the, yeah i i think in a very straightforward read you mm-hmm. could just say like okay aaron and amanda broke up this is what their whole last album was about. Um, but he hasn't given up on the hope for this relationship. And I think that's evident in other things we read about his life yes. and in the way that she is portrayed on this album. 
Yes. He's not giving up on her. Mm-hmm. So he's hanging onto the keys to her house, you know, just in case this goes somewhere. Um, <clears throat> but I, I think it's interesting. I never thought about that she'd always weighed me down as referring to either her or to the church. And I don't want to sit mm-hmm. here and like mm. heavily parse that out. Sure. It doesn't really work as a parallel the whole way through. But because we've been talking about it, I think it's interesting to read that first half that way, especially because that actually reads closer to the line, it's best to keep close sackcloth and yes. ash to whitewash town. Mm-hmm. And exactly. then the second half becomes very directly about Amanda, not as a continuation of the same thought, but actually as a parallel. So the first half of the post chorus is about the church. The second half is about Amanda. Maybe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um. Stephen, can you talk to us about the uh, the lead guitar line in the post-chorus? Oh, that yeah. Ebo is, oh, it it's so good. So Juicy. Let, me, <laughs> let me just play it. We can listen to it together and then let's talk about it. So I want to make sure yeah. I'm like, I'm getting the right moment that you're thinking of. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so that I'm talking about the high, uh, almost the like high phaser. lead line. Yeah, yep. it's, it's to me, it sounds like it's just a lot of reverb and yeah. uh, some very fast uh, picking. I think, well, it it could be that, but I want to say that when they played at least on this last tour, that Brandon played that part, and he usually whips out an Ebo for things like that. So okay. I, I doesn't go sound back. like it doesn't sound like an Ebo to me on the recording, sure. but um, but yeah, that could totally be. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I, I could I mean, I can hear it in terms of just the technique. I can hear it either way. And they, mm-hmm. they're both yeah. attempting a similar thing. The Ebo just sure. can emit faster vibrations than right, the fastest right, right. twitching. Then your finger. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so, so it's definitely a different texture than we've heard so far in this song. Um, pitch wise. It's the most tightly coiled little bundle of notes. Yeah. Maybe that we've had on the whole album again, because the whole album has been such uh, a kind of expansive, open, loose around the edges, feeling mm-hmm. like musical palette. Um, this opening pair of notes is a C natural and a B natural, mm-hmm. which Earlier in this song is actually what signals the ending of that that slow, unhurried opening. Yeah. Right. The last thing we hear is. And we actually land on what really does sound like an E minor chord at the end of the intro to this song. Mm -hmm. But the 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 sound that signals us landing on that on that E minor is that C B and then that pair of notes doesn't sound like much on its own but as i said from the beginning half steps always mean something on this album and sure. the first place we get a really strong presence of that cb chromatic slide down is actually 
at the end of Tie Me Up on Tie Me, mm. we've just had a reference to him ending his life, and we get this intense, terrifying ending. Right? Mm-hmm. Also in the key of E, and that middle thing that gives it that intensity in the drive down, other than the rhythmic drive, is... C, B, and then E, mm-hmm. getting back down there again. Mm-hmm. So that's this figure, but way up in a higher register. But then we have C, B, G sharp, A. That G sharp is outside the key. We've been in E minor the whole time. That G sharp is the note you would need to make a, a E major chord. That doesn't sound major here. It just sounds sort of coiled and tight and anxious and whatever right um so that's like to me in terms of the musical language that's what's going on is we have a tighter more chromatic sound than anywhere else really on this record i think that's super interesting Mm -hmm. the cb motion also ties into some other gestures on this album but as interesting as that to me is what the rhythm is doing here so Mm -hmm. ricky hits this beat and the rhythm guitar and the bass are going with him and it's just this driving thing that's going on that is the accent pattern is, you know, a bunch of eighth notes, but it's like four unaccented eighth notes, then four kind of more accented. Right. You get this downbeat, but the the beginnings of each of those measures are not emphasized. It's like it's just kind of this even playing field of just like like anticipatory intensity and then right when you get that like right Mm -hmm. those two Mm -hmm. big hits that the band does are right on the downbeat and so it's like you don't have strong downbeats through the whole pre-chorus and then it does it again then there's no like strong emphasis a whole second pass and then the payoff comes where that empty space is filled where everyone just hits it yep. so hard. Um, th- those punches are anticipated actually in what the guitars are doing at the very beginning when the tempo kicks in on this song. It's worth going back to listen sometime. Just listen to that opening guitar line and, yeah. and anticipate those punches here and feel how they shape the way you listen to the start of this song too. Mm. We've been set up for it. But, but this is the payoff. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, let's let's go on to this next verse here. Please. Rehearsed indifference tossed aside, our narrow arms spread wide. What unseen pen etched eternal things on the hearts of humankind, but never let them in our minds. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, it, I the the straightforward reading to rehearsed indifference for me is the call it, you know, the art scene, the punk scene, the hipster scene, whatever. Like you're supposed to look cooler than having mm-hmm. to for, by having a care. Right. So you're rehearsing Mm -hmm. your indifference. But no, when we embrace something authentic and we toss that aside, our narrow, you know, I'm I'm really playing up the like 
underfed hipster kid in skinny jeans in the mid 2000s, you know, spreading their arms wide and loving each other, you know, torches together, uh, Mm -hmm. anyone. But then what unseen pen etched eternal things on the hearts of humankind, but never let them in our minds. Oh, there's something. And so I'll just say how that reads to me innately. There, there's something within all of us that we cannot articulate. So we are always at tension with what is what it is to be like the most human. And you cannot ever conceptualize it. So what unseen pen, the, if that's God writing, you know, the, the stories of our lives, the, the prede, predetermined, if you will, <laughs> um, direction that we're going. Of these eternal things like love. For example, faith, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, the importance of community, those things that last far longer than we who can conceive of them somewhat mm-hmm. list. Those things are eternal and they're written on our hearts or our hearts. But we can't really get it. We don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. This is a I mean, it's such a um, <laughs> it's such a beautiful way of of putting this like. Uh, what is really a complicated philosophical distinction between yes. emotions and rationality? Yes. Um, yeah, and and there's something that's there's something that's mystical here about this too. I mean, so for uh, long stretches of time in Christian theology, there's there have been uh, there's been lots of ink spilled over um (laughs) this idea of you know how does god communicate with us um you know what is the nature of revelation um is it is it something that is known to us rationally or is it something that we can only experience uh on some other level but never cognize right so um you know in in the enlightenment you have people like Nick's favorite philosopher, Immanuel Kant. Oh uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, saying that like, uh, you know, God and, and religion are sort of outside of the rational faculties, but things that are outside of the rational faculties, like really like we can't worry about them because we can't have knowledge of them. Like knowledge only comes to us through our rationality. Um, and so the knowledge of quote eternal things is not ours to have. Right. All we can do is, you know, according to someone like Kant, is have some kind of hope that there is a God and that uh, you know, that God will make everything right someday. Um yeah. so that we will be vindicated for being morally upstanding people. Um and you know, and then you have uh people like uh Kierkegaard, and we talked about this difference Mm -hmm. right that Kierkegaard brings in where for Kierkegaard no 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 religion is not about being rational at all like God is wholly irrational God is completely outside of our rational faculties so whatever God asks you to do it doesn't the, the normal boundaries of rational of rationality which includes ethics does not it doesn't apply God is right. outside of that entirely. And so you have to suspend the rational. I mean, he says suspend suspend the ethical, 
right in in making your uh uh religious decisions but yeah um but it, yeah essentially what that means is like that is outside of the rational of of your rational faculties um mm-hmm. and you have lots of other people too right who come along and and basically uh say so uh around the same time as Kierkegaard you have the german uh theologian friedrich schleiermacher uh who also says religion is not about rationality it's about a feeling right a feeling mm-hmm. of absolute dependence upon something some some whence he calls it right uh which mm. is god um that the the greater that feeling of dependence grows the more aware you become of God's presence in your life or something like that. Um, and that, again, it's not something that is rationally knowable. And yeah. that is, I think, I mean, in some ways, I, I know that my, you know, uh, our, our, some of our atheist friends maybe are listening and being like, well, yeah, they, then why believe it? If you can't right. know it rationally, like, what <laughs> are you doing? Right. It's um, it's so funny. I was sitting here thinking to myself, as an atheist, I should hate this, but I love it. Like to me, <laughs> that is the most compelling re- like that's well, so, so fun to me. Like yeah, no, oh, no, it's it, so it, fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I think I think it is. I mean, in, in some ways, like, you know, as a myself a theologian and, and philosopher mm-hmm. of religion, like, yeah, I think that that is the more compelling God, right? If there is a God it is. Uh, that is the kind of God, like, I don't want the, the rational uh, God of the philosophers, right? I want the God that is like the horizon of possibility, yes. right? The God that is like uh, beyond my comprehension of what something like absolute perfect love, you know, yes. could be, right? That's, yeah. you know, and especially from the perspective of of like social justice and that kind of thing, like, mm-hmm. um you know, people, students will ask me all the time, like, what is, what's, what use is there uh, for belief in God? Um, like, we, why do people find this useful? And like, I will say, you know, for me, I think that um, I, I really can see the usefulness in believing that there, that there can be a, uh, you know, a, a more, uh, a more just world right that there can yes. be a even a perfectly just world right and that that somehow could be built outside of uh of or 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 with well yeah i i don't know well My point well, is that uh, yeah go ahead uh, i'll just insert that it's the reason i still read fiction like mm. there's value in fairy tales for the same reason you might get something else out of them but there's value in observing things from a a perspective of either a more ideal you know we get that with some fiction or what we could do like if i can conceive of this thing this horrible thing in my mind let's imagine that act that playing out in real in real life and that Mm -hmm. allows us to see what we really want to have come from our actions in, in in a in a roundabout strange way like it makes rational sense to pay yeah. attention to these things, even if you don't believe them to be true. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, anyway. no I, I definitely, I definitely can see that. Um, and, 
Yeah. So it's it's interesting, right? This that this is posed as a kind of question, right? Why are these things etched on our hearts, but not allowed into our minds? I think that, um, you know, some uh, again, I, I know some of my or some of our uh, atheist pals might be like, yeah, I mean, if uh, if everything is like outside of rationality, then you have this like um, what's often referred to as like a God of the gaps kind of mm. uh, theology where it's like you can kind of just brush it aside and be like, well, it's outside of our rationality. Nobody can put this into words. We right. don't understand it. You know, you just got to like uh, have a feeling for it. And it, I, I totally get how for some people like, no, that doesn't cut it. Like that mm -hmm. makes it because that makes it too easy. And this is the kind of like, uh, I see a sort of double sidedness in, in this Me statement too. and in, in this question, right? Because yeah, there is a sense in which people do use that, um, that, you know, this idea that like religion, Christianity is, uh, not about thinking and rationality. It's about feeling only period. Um, that can also be a problem, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't say that only as like a jaded, disaffected uh, academic <laughs> who tried to stay in the church, but like couldn't because people were like afraid to talk to me about, yeah. <laughs> about their faith yeah. or whatever. Um, yeah, of course, like so many people who study theology academically, almost all of us, unless you're like, uh, you know, very, very conservative, you know, and willing to kind of like go along with that. Yeah. I mean, most of us who study theology academically, like we don't feel like we have uh, a place in the church because of this kind of distinction, right? I intellectual pursuits oftentimes uh, in American Christianity are looked upon with suspicion, right? Because mm -hmm. The unseen pen did not etch these things in in our minds, but on our hearts. Um, right. Yeah. So there's so there's that aspect to it too. I imagine <laughs> Aaron questioning. Right. We saw this uh, previously. Right. If I ask the same question, if I ask the same question, right, I'm going to ask the same questions over and over again. Because everyone who answers me is a liar. <laughs> right. You. May, yeah. And you may not like that. Um, yeah. But so there, I, I read in this also, yeah, a kind of uh, lamenting a little bit. Like, why well, can't we it's funny think you about brought that things? up because that yeah. rehearsed indifference, you have to yeah. practice acting the way you want to, which in a sense is a form of lying. Mm. So, yep. so it, I am practicing the type of response I'm supposed to give to this mm -hmm. sort of doubt. Like, yep. I, I, in a sense, this line that we've spent. <laughs> entirely too much time saying very similar things about um yeah no which no offense to any of it i think this is really great stuff um this is the crux of his whole dilemma right here yeah 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 this thing that i perceive to be eternally true i can't actually figure out there's no way i can and that's like a big if that's not the cause of all of his qualms it's what he's hanging his hat on right now for all of his qualms and that's mm -hmm. interesting i think you can print out this quote 
and hang it above the doorpost of the house where all the rest of Me Without You's lyrics live. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Totally. He, I think he finds some answers to be hopeful. Um, but that is the question right there. Before mm-hmm. we even get to, does God exist? <clears throat> Before we get into any of that, any of that interesting existential stuff, this is the question Mm -hmm. that he's been grappling with and will continue to grapple with. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say this. I mean, I, I don't even know what this line is doing in this song, and I'm okay with not knowing because this line seems to extend out in such a greater way across the broader scope of what yes of what this band yeah. uh, is all about. Um, I just want to say a, a personal word about the, the phrase rehearsed indifference tossed aside again, as I mentioned in the last episode, as we're recording this in real time, we're now just a couple weeks out from this band playing their last show. Mm-hmm. And something that struck me while watching those two finale performances was how careful that Aaron seemed to be at the microphone, not just in those two shows, but it sort of like came to light when I've seen them over the years, especially progressively later in their career, he seemed to have less of like a message and a mission from the microphone. Yes. And we've talked about this before, Mm -hmm. but it was more and more pronounced later they got in their career. Yep. And, and the moment that I saw all that fall away, was in the encore on their mm-hmm. last concert mm-hmm. when Aaron finished playing Cardiff Giant by himself. I mean, there is no more vulnerable, beautiful moment in all of their 20 plus years of live performance than that. Yeah. (laughs) It was pretty amazing to see it in person. Oh, I can imagine. I was sobbing on my couch personally, but uh, yeah, yeah, that was a moment. So obviously I never would have had that experience to associate with this line before but right but listening to this song now after the end rehearsed indifference tossed aside i i can just see aaron's totally sincere clean shaven face standing there looking out (laughs) at this crowd Mm -hmm. and just try to imagine all that he's experiencing in that moment knowing that he's about to walk off the stage for the last time yeah yeah So how about those clouds coming back? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have to talk about the chorus again because... It changes uh, a lot. It changes. There's new lines and they're really important. They really are. You know what else is really important? Yeah. Thank you.
say about that? About that, about that part, the music. Yeah. Yeah. What? What is like because of because it just seems so obscure or random or to to me. I think that moment where Aaron asks this enormous question, which as I say the word enormous, I, let me just say our narrow arms spread wide is, is I think is, is a nice parallel to the line about look at your eyes, they're small in size, but they see enormous things that we're yeah, going to yeah. come up a little bit later. So th those are a nice pair. Mm-hmm. But we've just been asked this this huge question, which for what it's worth, oh, I didn't say this, but this this will play into what we do with this raw, naked guitar part. Mm -hmm. The way that this verse, if you want to call it a verse, is punctuated is rehearsed indifference, tossed aside, comma, our narrow arms spread wide, colon, quote, what unseen pin etched eternal things on the hearts of humankind, comma, but never let them in our minds, question mark, end quote. There's something about rehearsed indifference tossed aside, our narrow arms spread wide, that is like a setup for the question mm. that yeah. is hanging over all of this. And the response that the band gives to him asking this question of all questions yeah. is not to ramp back into the chorus about the clouds and the darkness and the hard rain. It is just to sit perfectly still, mm -hmm. completely still, if you will. <laughs> what? What is going on? <laughs> yeah. Oh. I have to say, I, I really love it, though. Like, it is it is so jarring. But yes. when the chorus comes back in, it's like, mm, like, it just <laughs> feels so huge and satisfying. It does. Um, I mean, especially seeing it live. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. like, this is one of my favorite songs to see them play live. Yep. Um, this is what they opened their farewell tour with. This was the first song yeah. in Chicago. Like it is this, really, yeah, yeah, which is crazy because okay. this feels like a yeah. well. And then I was looking at the set list for the final two shows, and this was the third song on night one, I think. Yep. Yeah. So again, mm -hmm. it, but again, these moments feel epic enough that you would expect them towards the end of a set. But yeah. I don't know. That's it's really quite fascinating. But that moment that um. It makes it feel, even though we've just heard the same music for the chorus, it, mm -hmm. not even a minute before, yeah. it feels fresh and new again because we have yeah. this stripped, completely stripped down rhythmic solo guitar. Yeah. yeah. Wild. It's just quarter notes. Yeah. There's no, there's not even really a rhythm. I mean, yes, it's rhythmic in the sense that it's just like hammering out chords but it's just it's just the beat it's like the metronome mm -hmm. of the song yep and none of these 
are major or minor triads. There is just a funny cluster of notes. On top, there's an E and an F sharp. And it starts with a B underneath. It's this kind of open-ended suspended sounding chord. And then yeah. sounds dissonant. So you got the G and F sharp there with this thing. And then and now we have this C, E, F sharp tritone that in another context would want to resolve out which is exactly how the still child begins yep. mm-hmm. i don't think that this is supposed to be a reference to that or anything but but it's interesting because because there's not that many dissonances on this album in the same way um but we're hanging out the one moving line of this little guitar part is moving from b to g to C and then it resolves down to B again. So that that longing, yearning kind of resolve from C natural down to B natural that is what ends the intro to this song is also the thing that kind of drives the loop starting over again at this moment. So it is directly musically related to what happened before, but also from just a textural standpoint, the intro to this song is just the same solo guitar. Now it's a big expansive, like wide open sounding solo guitar at the beginning, whereas here it's very tight and confined. But if we didn't have that intro to the song, I feel like this would feel like it throws the whole track off balance. But because we had the solo guitar at the beginning, from a compositional standpoint, this totally pays off because there's nothing else like it on the album. But that opening makes this work sort of to counterbalance it on the second half of the song. Um, but it's just powerful. And and literally, I mean, right after a line, like, what unseen pen has eternal things in the hearts of humankind, but never let them in our minds. The power of this is that I can't explain it. Yeah. <laughs> Other than to say, you've mentioned this throughout the album, and this just might be the best example of it. They're giving yeah. us space to contemplate that line for a second. Yes. yes. So it's it's still driving us forward. It's still counting yep. out the measures. Yep. So but so something's coming. We feel something yep. is coming. Yep. But we're holding on to that line, which is just, I mean, yeah. There's your me without you tattoo, yeah. guys. I mean, come on, yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, you're totally right. No, Nick, this is this is one of those moments where the music is giving yeah. us a chance to breathe and to contemplate the words that have just passed before us. And this is I, this is the best one on the album. I mean, they're all great, but yeah, in its utter simplicity, this is the most powerful moment of reflection that we get. And in the same way that the sort of rhythmic space that gives us the setup so that this um, is hit so hard in that post-chorus. On a broader scale, the utter sense of space and emptiness and loneliness that we get here in these guitar chords is the perfect foil to the intensity of the chorus returning. Oh, the
and man, there's so much emotion just in the simple return of Aaron's voice saying the word "oh," mm-hmm. right? Mm, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, because you then you know if he didn't do that, if you just got the downbeat without him like sighing in anticipation of it, the yeah. effect wouldn't be nearly as strong as what it is on this recording. Yeah, true. So, so true. Yeah. Very true. Then it would be like jarring in kind of like an unpleasant way. Yeah. But with just that moment of, oh, it's like the payoff is so good. It is. And he achieves that effect to differing degrees in life. He did. Uh, uh, He once once did achieve that with his. Jack White said it best, like you put the mic further away from where you want it to be so that you have to struggle to get to it. It forces you to like have more passion in what you're yeah. performing. And Aaron yeah. does that to a T when he's like yes. off, you know, last time they're playing this hugging somebody on stage or whatever he would yeah. happen to be doing and then running back to the microphone yeah. or just, or just missing it, missing the cue. So there's this weird playing with the time of it that just, yeah. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, yeah. Anyway, the chorus is back. Like the clouds bring a darkness and a hard rain's gonna fall. And all my laughter ends in emptiness. And a hard rain's gonna fall. My every medicine causes more illness. And a hard rain's gonna fall. But until I let you go, I didn't know you were never mind. You were never mind at all. Ooh, boy. So what's interesting, I mean, the first thing that jumps out to me is a couple of callbacks actually to A to B life. At least you could read them that way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So all my laughter ends in emptiness reminds me of uh, I never said that I was brave. You might laugh, but you'll never smile. Yeah. yeah. Come on in and waste away a while. And we talked yeah. about that for a long time on that episode. And we talked about... Edgar Allan Poe in the fall of the house of Usher. Yes. Right. And Stephen, you had that great, uh, you know, you read that great uh, line or, or um, passage from uh, that, uh, that story of the, the throng of something. Uh, it was some, some Scream image out forever. Yeah. Yeah. And laugh forever, but smile no more. But Smile no more. Yep. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a, a reminder there. Um, and then yep. uh, every medicine causes more illness. Um, yeah, there's these interesting callbacks, but also yeah. just this idea of uh, things that are supposed to help, right, or be good in some way have the opposite effect, yeah. obviously. Right? Yeah. Well, and just within the structure of this song, now he is <clears throat> he's put placing that on himself. Mm-hmm. His laughter ends in emptiness. Is medicine causes more illness. Yeah. Parallel to she wore that phony smile on her face, I guess, like a bandage on a wounded place. Yeah. Right. So in the other chorus, or the post chorus, I should say, we have this line that also sounds straight out of A to B life, especially something like um, she put on happiness like a loose dress over mm-hmm. pain I'll never know. Yeah, there you go. Right. That there line sounds very much like a counterpart to the post chorus in the earlier part of this song. Yes. But now it's not about her it's about himself he's having the same experience yep and man i cannot tell you how many times a week the phrase my every medicine causes more illness passes through my head 
it could be about anything in life. Like, yep. so something I, I, I talk about to friends and family and students and whoever will listen to me is that the music that I love has given me what, what I would call a spiritual vocabulary. I mean, mm -hmm. sure. Like the language I have in my head is largely shaped by the Bible, but, but there's lyrics like this that help me understand the experience of having what seems to be going on behind the surface. And this is one for whatever reason, this is just sticky. It's not like, it's not my favorite line. I don't love the image or the sentiment of my every medicine causes more illness, but that yeah. seems to be a way to describe me trying to get something right. And it just blowing up in my face all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Dang. Wow. I also, this is just a joke. I don't think it's yeah. serious, but it's, uh, yeah. the, it just made me go like, oh, so apparently Aaron Weiss is anti-vax or something like that. <laughs> like, no, like the the side effects being worse than the thing they're curing sort of thing. I don't think right. that's true, especially right. with the rhetoric the band used around being safe during COVID precautions. But yeah. anyway, yeah. but um, but talk, take this line back to, you know, the line like rescued by a sinking ship. Yeah. Right. The thing that was supposed to save him is the thing that has now dragged him under the ocean. The ultimate irony of that is fantastic. Yeah. 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 So well done. But now I spend my days in ever increasingly complicated ways, convincing myself of the rightness of each word I say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Purity of heart is to will one thing. Yeah. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah. This feels like just him taking another pass at describing how that is the opposite of his experience. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and that coming to the the last couple lines here uh, is even better, especially with the repetition of my exit unfair, if unobserved. So, oh, man, I've never seen the word if there before. Mm -hmm. I checked multiple places because I always thought he was saying. And. That it was both unfair and unobserved. I have, yeah, I've only ever heard it as the word and. It's definitely printed as if in the liner notes. Which is a conditional clause. So my exit is unfair if it is unobserved, is how you could part, you mm -hmm. know, with more words. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> um, can, can we listen to that? I'm curious yeah, if, the, please. If, if is what he actually says or if, yeah. or if he changed it in the studio. Both are relevant, interesting, and valid, but let's just jump in here. Sounds to me like he's saying and unobserved, yes. not if. It sounds that way to me too. Me yeah. too. I don't I don't think we've been wrong for 20 years or no. 18 years or whatever. Right. Hearing it that way. But it's interesting that when he wrote these lyrics, and I assume that what's printed in the liner notes probably precedes what he ended up doing in the studio. I would assume so. Most, if not all cases. So if what he originally intended was to say my exit unfair, if unobserved, 
until they realized maybe it didn't feel good in the mouth to say it that way on mm-hmm. the microphone. Like, yeah, what if, does that mean? Yeah. Especially because the way he's delivering it, I think it, it the mouth, the mouthfeel actually may be a, a decision point because if is a, um, F's are sibilants, I believe. And sibilants are, how do you shout a sibilant? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, the, the track begins by saying in a declarative, my exit unobserved. He doesn't right. say if my exit were unobserved, like exactly. he says it, it was unobserved. And so it wouldn't really make sense then to say my exit unfair if unobserved, it was unobserved. So yeah. like it may, <laughs> but does Joel, make more the sense. The unreliable say, narrator. I'm no, okay. We're not, we're not, we're not going there. No, uh, not at this hour. <laughs> not at this hour. Exactly. Yeah. Um, any, anything left to say about, convincing himself of the rightness of each word he says, or do we want to tackle these uh, last few, this Arabic prayer? I think, I mean, I, I'll just say, Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think that can be understood pretty straightforwardly. Like, again, whenever you leave uh, any individual person or group of people, whatever in Mm -hmm. conflict, you you do con- sit around convincing yourself yes. of the rightness of each of your words. So I think, I mean, pretty straightforwardly, I think that's what's going on there. Yep. I, yeah. I think so too. I think so. And too. it speaks to a, a general distrust of his own use of language as a tool mm-hmm. for whatever ends. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. So speaking of using language as a tool for whatever ends, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't have a blessed clue what any of the words at the end of this song means because they're in Arabic and I don't read or speak that language. So I have the translation available, but I thought it would be worth attempting to read the Arabic. I know I said before we hit record, I don't want to read it, but if neither of you do either, I guess I will. I think I think Joel's a good candidate. Yes. Oh, wow. Really? He does. No. He does religious stuff. He reads old, dusty books. He does religious. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, OK, I, I honestly don't think that I will be any better than either of you, but I will give it a go. Yasabur. Subhanal. Yeah. Subhanal. Subhanalahi. Uh, uh, I'll do okay, you guys. This is bad. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I'll I'll bail you out and then I'll sink the ship. Um, Yasabur Subanalahi Audhu Bilahi Minash Shaitanir Rahim Alhamdulillah Bismillah Irrahman Irrahim. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. That sounded, that sounded pretty good to me. If, if I had to do it, I was just going to mumble the way I do when I'm singing along with him. I'm kidding. But, uh, Arabic, I, Arabic speakers uh, who are listening, so feel, feel free. Yes, we're, first of all, we're very sorry. Um, uh, but also feel free to, uh, you know, call in, correct us, uh, yeah. give us the proper pronunciation uh, if you so desire. Um, so the, <laughs> the translation that I have available is, O most patient, glory be to thee. I seek refuge in you from Satan the accursed. Praise be to God in the name of God, most gracious, most compassionate, most merciful. 
pretty fitting end as we've seen all the different concepts be brought up throughout this song. And really, maybe this is a, a moment to talk about how I see the placement of this song in the album. And it sounds like we have some different thoughts about that when we were talking about it earlier. So yeah, for me, there's a trajectory of this album, musically and lyrically, that makes sense to kind of land here. Not that this has to be the end, but this made sense after Paper Hanger, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And then tonally, we get a really big shift in forward letter. Like it, to me, doesn't fit on the album musically at first. It took me a minute to, to bite into that apple. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, fun fact, dear listener, whoever gave me this on my iPod as we would do music exchanges, the first time I ever heard it, that song wasn't on it. Forward Letter Part 2 was not on it. So Whoa. I was like, I know. So I heard that five, ten years after I first heard the album. It's no crazy. way. Like, yeah, way. What? I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is, wow. Mind-blowing. Yeah. I think that's worse <laughs> than hearing A to B life in alphabetical It order. is, because it that is. song contextualizes so much of this freaking album. It's incredible. Yeah. Wow. But I still... Okay, so like seeing it doing that lyrically, I still have this interesting thought of like, okay, so something happened here. And I'll go... I can't recall which song it was, but we talked about the descent into the waves and the ascension... Within, mm-hmm. I, I want to say that was Seven Sisters into the Soviet. Yeah, that's that. That that was the moment. Yeah, this feels like another descent. And so, in my conceptualization, yeah, or or ascension into a storm. But either sure. way, you're in you're in tumult. You're you're not going to live very long in this setting, uh, in the real world. That puts the next three songs, or really the next two songs into an interesting contrast, the, the franticness, the, the chaos of forward letter part two. And then the soul crushing sadness of carousels. Mm -hmm. And then Steven, I heard you say previously that son of a widow feels like a, a piece apart. Yeah. So I, I I think you still get that. That's like almost coming through the other side of the storm that he's entering at the end of this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. And and that actually brings up an image that I hadn't considered till mm-hmm. now, but I think we need to just acknowledge that that laid bare guitar part that precedes the last chorus. Yep. Read it like the eye of a hurricane. Mm. Because we just had this giant divine storm clouding over up until that point. And think even of, of musical details, like the way that Ricky does drum fills on this song. It's not mm-hmm. like him showing off like fun tom fills. Yeah. It's these sort of sporadic, chaotic snare buzzes, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, just, they never happen the same way twice. They kind of head out of nowhere. It feels very stormy and unpredictable mm-hmm. and chaotic. And so when yeah. you strip all that away in the middle of a song about storm clouds and you have just calm and rest and silence all loaded with the anticipation that something is about to happen again 
That feels very much. Not that I've ever been in a hurricane and had the storm blow over and I've been in the eye and it goes out the other side. I don't know if that's experience that anyone has had. It happens sure. in movies probably, but yeah. I, I don't know. Like, feels cinematic um, anyway, for sure. Yeah. 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 But if you think of that moment as being the eye of the hurricane, then the storm roars back in until the end of this song. And him screaming, my exit unfair and unobserved is like him like shaking his fists and shouting at this storm as he's trying to grapple with this experience of this exit that he's just had. But then yeah. listen to the tone of his voice. It's actually, it precedes that last shout. You yeah. hear the shift happen, but now I spend my days in ever increasingly complicated ways, convincing mm -hmm. myself of the rightness of each word I say. Mm -hmm. It drops down into a very natural conversational kind of speech mm -hmm. right there. It, it does. doesn't sound performative in the same way that the rest of this song does. Exactly. And then after he rails at the heavens, my exit unfair and unobserved, then this prayer in Arabic is in an exact same unpretentious, natural, honest to goodness. Yeah. Rehearsed indifference, tossed aside kind of voice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it forms another kind of calm, but now it's a calm with the storm still around him. Mm -hmm. The music is still raging on all sides, but his voice drops down into a very calm register yep. here. Yep. And then you get oh, I wrote a four-word letter back like at the top of his intensity as soon as this is over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Am I wrong? Is this the first use of Arabic? It is. So this is like such a Christian album. Yeah. Can we just like sit here for a moment and reflect on the fact that they used Arabic at this moment? I would love to. <laughs> yeah. That's so, mm, especially with where they're going with a forward letter part two. Oh man. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yes. So if, if this song is in fact about leaving a church, if not the church at large, but mm -hmm. whether it could be loaded with a or V at this moment. Yeah. Think about what this impulse is in the, in the thick of the storm to fall into an Arabic prayer mm. is, is like him returning to the peaceful sea before he was rescued by a sinking ship, right? This yeah. is him like going back to his roots going home and praying like like the only way he knows like this yeah. is like praying at home with my dad right mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. it conjures to mind like say someone who was raised catholic yeah who has left that church and in you know a, a lapsed catholic will say yeah recalling a childhood prayer during a horrible like a plane a perceived plane crash like you mm -hmm. pray you claim to not believe you claim to not trust god and then what do you fall into in this moment and and for a lot of people it brings this calm mm -hmm. yeah wow yeah and i mean it's it is just super interesting culturally uh especially because of 
the time in which this album was released. I mean, just three years, uh, three years in a month, right? Three years a month and yeah. Or three years and a little less than a month or something like that, right after 9-11. Yeah. And um, I mean, the election of 2004 also, I mean, demonstrated very, very clearly that like, evangelicals culturally were definitely still in a place of anti-Muslim sentiment. I mean, the re-election of George W. Bush, I think, in part, demonstrates that pretty clearly. I mean, yeah, so... And only a year before, I don't remember that when we entered, but the Iraq War started right before this. So, like, that was just getting ramped up. Like a year and a half before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and... So yeah, it's uh it's interesting. I I don't I mean, hmm. I think on the one hand, you know, it it kind of just goes to show uh how invested like literally like financially Christian bookstores were in by this point in a record label like Tooth and Nail. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I I think Tooth and Nail by 2004 was pretty well established uh, at the Christian bookstores. And, you know, they had figured out a way to really sell themselves literally to Christian bookstores and market themselves in a way that was going to pretty much guarantee, right, that their records could be sold there. I mean, that was at that time, right, we're, we're still pre-YouTube, uh, pre-streaming music in 2004. I mean, you have like uh, MP3.com. <laughs> yeah, Pure Volume. I think launched in <laughs> in 2004. You all remember that that one? Oh um, man, yeah. So, but like for the most part, like no one is. I mean, yeah, you you have iPods and whatnot, but like you can't get music digitally the way that you can now. Yep. Um, we have to remember that, and so. Yeah, Christian bookstores were the lifeline. And it's it's interesting to me that I mean, I don't know what the process was for getting this album approved, but um, you know, generally speaking, there was an approval process for like Lifeway Christian bookstores. Uh unless the uh unless the artist was like part of the CCM world, right? The contemporary Christian music scene based in Nashville and like signed to a known entity sort of major Christian label where there wasn't going to be any question about the content. Um, you know, they were, they were going to be checking the content. So like mm-hmm, tooth yeah. and nail bands regularly got checked by executives at Lifeway, right? The lyrics were read and so forth. I don't know what the process was for this album, but it's interesting that, something like this was able to get through, you know, that, that this yeah. wasn't, you would, you would think that a huge Christian bookstore like Lifeway, for instance, that is, uh, you know, connected to conservative evangelical Christianity, you would imagine that yeah. anything in Arabic would just be instantly like red flagged, right? Yeah. By, it, and yet it wasn't. All this is to say is that, in 2004, there there was checking going on. There was mm-hmm. um, there were some things that kind of like 
snuck through. Uh, I'm sure there are other examples as well. I mean, 2004, again, that's like really the getting into like peak time of uh, a lot of tooth and nail solid state popularity. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So it's, it's just an interesting cultural moment, right? For it something, totally. for a record like this to kind of uh, slide through. Well, mm-hmm. and you know, if, if these lyrics had been printed in English and or sung in English, I actually don't think anything in the content of those words would have raised any red flags. No, no, um, no. I mean, they're talking against the devil. Like what else could you want on an album in a Christian bookstore? Right. It's, it's purely a language question, not yeah. a, a i.e. the language it is written in. Right. The content. And yet somehow. Yeah. Somehow a line like, oh, my God, I want to shoot myself just thinking about it. We don't bat an eye, mm-hmm. that's was there. not enough. Yeah. <laughs> was not enough to keep it out of stores. Yeah. 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 Wow. <laughs> anyway. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening to our conversation about My Exit Unfair. Before we get into the normal outro stuff, I wanted to apologize for the uh, leave of absence we took, kind of unannounced. Uh, For those of you who may be experiencing some sort of mental health issues or dark thoughts, I'd once again remind you of 988, the U.S.'s uh, suicide prevention hotline. This is a great resource for getting yourself out of dark places. I'd also encourage you to check out NAMI, that's N-A-M-I, or the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Their website is nami.org, that's nami.org. They have some great resources for all different types of mental illnesses, as well as some cognitive impairments, and uh, they're, they're just a great place to find some resources. With that... Be sure to follow us on all the social medias. Uh, we're Us Without Them Pod on Instagram and Facebook. You can also join our Facebook group, Us Without Them Podcast, and like our page to learn more about upcoming episodes as well as engage with the listener community. If you want to drop us a line, you can reach us at uswithoutthempod at gmail.com where you can send us any questions, comments, concerns, pushback, alternative readings, things like that. You could also drop us a call at 405-FOXES-05. That's 405-369-3705, and you may hear your voice on a future episode. Also be sure to go to our website, uswithoutthempod.com, where we'll have episode descriptions, blog posts, show notes with links to all the various crazy references that we're making. Anyway, join us next time for Forward Letter Part 2.